Hello, hello and welcome on The Barricades. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European journalists and academics. And uh, this is your host, Maria Cernat, and with me as usual is the co-host, Boyan Stanislavski. Thank you for being here with us. Hey, hello. Thanks. And the special guest, Patricia Gorki. Uh, she is a member of the party, of a very interesting party, isn't it? In the United States Party for Socialism and Liberation. I hope I'm not mistaken. And she's a commentator. And she's also very engaged in describing and analyzing things related to technology since she works as a programmer, as an IT engineer, in IT companies in the United States. Uh, thank you for being here with us, Patricia. Thanks for having me on. And I say Patricia out of the reflex because Patricia is Romanian. She was actually born here and I'm used to call her by her Romanian name, not Patricia, <laughs> as it should be. So, um, yeah, well, we are going to discuss kind of depressing things today related to the U.S. military and its particular interest in uh, Romania and in Eastern Europe. Uh, you analyzed for quite a while the way, for instance, artificial intelligence is used by the U.S. military and what this means in general for the future of warfare, for the future of military conflict. And um, before discussing and going into the details of that, uh, the first thing that I want you to elaborate a little bit is the interest that the State Department, the CIA, and all the state apparatus in the U.S. has in Eastern Europe. They have an, an interest, and we are going to prove that with documents that you obtain because uh, they were from the archive that were made available for the public. And uh, while carefully studying that, you were able to see that there is uh, quite an interest in Eastern Europe. So I want you to elaborate a little bit on that. So the reasons for U.S. interest in, in Eastern Europe um, is actually helpful if, um, if you look at a map, frankly, of looking at the situation of where is Eastern Europe, of what are the, uh, what are the resources that, that it borders, um, who are the countries um, in which, uh, you know, which is, uh, which is in the area. Um, and Eastern Europe is at this junction, right, of where we have of, of Asia, of uh, the Middle East nearby, of um, also of Russia, very importantly, um, and to, uh, to understand why, uh, why is the U.S., uh, why is the U.S. so interested in, um, in building up military bases in, um, in Romania, in, um, also in, uh, in Belarus, in Moldova, and expanding NATO, um, you, can, um, you can really see, uh, you can really see why, because uh, the U.S. is preparing for a major power confrontation with uh, China and Russia. Uh, China, of course, the U.S. sees as the biggest ideological threat, not because it is a threat, uh, but because uh, but because China um, China is really charting an independent course, and similarly with countries like uh, like Russia, like Syria, uh, like Iran, uh, you have countries around the world that take an independent foreign policy uh, with independent economic interests, um, and that the U.S. is really looking to uh, to overthrow their governments and bring within the U.S. imperialist sphere, and so from that perspective. 
the way that the U.S. views Eastern Europe is not as uh, a region rich with history, with culture, with uh, with amazing people, but rather as uh, terrain, um, terrain and human material to be exploited in their wars against Russia and against China. Yeah, I told you, and uh, I have to say that these are not very pleasant things to to discuss when you think that you are um, <clears throat> looked at from this perspective is kind of troubling. And I don't think uh, our viewers and a lot of people in Romania are prepared to see themselves like this. Uh, this is a major problem that uh, we embrace the U.S. and we embrace the idea of becoming a NATO partner with open arms. And yeah, but we're not partners, enthusiasm. really. No, no, no. And because you know, what we're putting at stake is our territory, the territory and the, uh, of those countries uh, that would be the territories of a potential military conflict. I mean, the military conflict with, between the U.S. and Russia is going to happen exactly here. If it happens, I hope it doesn't. But if it if it does, then it's going to happen in Romania, it's going to happen in the Black Sea, it's going to happen in Poland, in the Baltic states, and so on and so forth, right? And and we're not getting anything out of it. Like, where's the, no, no, where's the good getting, end of the deal, right? So even it's the idea of us getting into the United States without visa, it it is yeah. now discussed that maybe Romanians are going to be allowed to go to the United States without visa, but this even that is not. But it's ludicrous on its face. Like, who cares about visas when the entire country could be destroyed? Like, especially you know, I'm from Poland. Well, I'm from Bulgaria, but I'm I live in Poland, which is a country that has been totally destroyed during the Second World War. Okay, in similar uh, geopolitical um, circumstances, like you know, they were trying to flex their mass, uh, not their own, but uh, Britain's and France's muscles against Hitler, and finally, you know, they got kicked by everyone. So, and the entire country was destroyed. Okay. So uh, this is the same thing, like this is the same situation. Well, of course, not exactly the same because the history never repeats itself uh, in, in the very exact manner. But what I'm trying to say that, you know, we're putting everything that we have at stake and we're not getting anything. So apart from the moral uh, aspect of it, which is, you know, hair raising, obviously, there is also the, 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 the problem of bad policy. I mean, this is just a very bad political choice. Yeah, it is so. Uh, not so. I remember, and I look now. My family, my sister, my friends, everybody in Romania still looks up to the United States and still thinks that it is so great that we are members of NATO. It is so great that we are partners, even though it is so obvious that we are not. It is so great that the U.S. is here. So, how would you explain that, Patricia? Well, one way that I would explain that is that I think the U.S. does a very good job at promoting an image of itself that is just not true. Of the U.S. is um, is presented as a land of opportunity, right? Home of the free, la la la. Like all of these, all of these talking points get put forward as the image, and without having uh, without having understanding of the fact that. Uh, that 140 million Americans, that's half the population, live in poverty. 140 million uh, people live in conditions where they struggle to uh, struggle to pay rent, where they struggle to get food, uh, where uh, where schools are overcrowded um, and don't have heat. Actually, some schools in Baltimore were closed down because uh, because they did not have heat, and the children were freezing in uh, within these buildings. 
Um, there are some areas of the country that uh, where uh, where diseases like um, uh, hookworm and, and other parasites are are spreading because there's um, there's just a lack of sanitation uh, in terms of the infrastructure, lack of sanitary infrastructure. Of thousands of cities have been exposed to lead poisoning, to um, other types of poisoning within uh, within the water, and that's permanent. You know, who knows how many uh, hundreds of thousands, if not more, of children have been permanently disabled because of lead in their water. This is the United States. This is the richest country, you know, in the history of the world that uh, cannot provide for its population. There have been a number of uh, a number of natural disasters as well recently, um, including uh, hurricanes that hit um, in uh, La. Plus, Louisiana, um, and then as well, fires that destroyed entire towns um, in uh, in California. Um, and with these uh, with these cities, these cities have been completely destroyed. They're gone. All of the infrastructure is collapsed. Uh, there are no power. There's no power. There's no running water, and people are still there because they have nowhere to go. The government tells them evacuate, but where do you go? I mean, just 90 miles south of Miami, uh, you look at the island of Cuba, socialist Cuba. Every time there's a hurricane, the government sends out uh, sends out alerts. Uh, the people are prepared. They organize. Um, your doctor, there's a plan to take you out into a safe area. Your doctor comes with you, knows what medications that that you have. And for this reason, I think it's something maybe like only you know 40 people have died um, in um, uh, in the past 20 or, or so years or 40 years um, within uh, at, on account of hurricanes. Um, and of course, Cuba is under these criminal sanctions and unable to rebuild because of uh, U.S. domination um, over the global economy. Uh, but what this highlights is that, you know, with these natural disasters that are only going to continue because of climate change, it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to have the society where uh, where the masses of people are literally uh, just left to uh, left to suffer and fend for themselves, um, that we we need to actually plan uh, for uh, for these future crises. But instead of that, what we are seeing is huge, huge investment into the in the military. And at the same time, uh, we are seeing that, unfortunately, the techno-determinist perspective saying that technology will bring social progress uh, is just a fantasy because, unfortunately, technology is being used on a mass scale by the military for military purposes. And um, I want you to write, uh, to discuss a little bit the way the artificial intelligence is used by the U.S. military. Right. And with technology in particular, uh, there definitely is that view, right, of like technology is progress. Each new refresh of a laptop means that we're closer to, I don't even know, human, a better human society. I mean, it's just completely absurd. Um, and these, uh, the, this idea that gets put forward, of course, like technology is the development of of knowledge, uh, the development of, of science. And we can see throughout history, how has technology been used? It's been used within the societal context that it was created. That's right. Everything happens within a political context, within, um, you know, within a context of, um, uh, of the people there. Um, and for example, the wheel during the times of feudalism, the wheel was used, uh, was used to, uh, cart off, 
uh, cart off serfs into into prison. Today, the wheel is used to, uh, you know, for a number of things, military machines. And this, this is kind of a, a broad example, but just a highlight of that one single uh, piece of technology, um, you know, can have a good application, it can be used to distribute food to, to many different people, can, use, can be used to connect parts of the world, um, or it can be used to destroy um, and with, uh, with artificial intelligence, this is very much in uh, a similar way. It's, it's a continuation of the development of, uh, of the productive forces of society. It's, it's uh, the development of, um, of new, uh, new technology. And when we look at what it is, artificial intelligence, I mean, it kind of covers a number of different topics, but broadly, you can think about it as taking in a, a vast amount of data um, and having a, a computer be able to make decisions based off of that. So what kind of decisions are going to be made? Well, in the U.S., what uh, what this is really gearing towards is the military, uh, and this is actually where uh, where so much of uh, of technological innovation and, and actual innovation really happens and is directed towards of this investment in uh, this investment in artificial intelligence, um, in in robotics, um, in automated weapons, and in fact, actually, automated weapons are being used today. And have been used to uh, hunt down people, kill them in um, in Libya, in the Libyan civil war, where uh, NATO and U.S. overthrew uh, the government of Gaddafi and um, and lynched him lynched him in the street. Uh, so that um, that civil war that's still continuing to this day. Um, this is where uh, this is where new technologies are being um, are being experimented with. And in um, in last year the uh, CIO of the Department of Defense, the chief information officer, um, he, uh, he said, we are ready to start our first lethality, lethality project next year in the joint warfighter targeting space. And what does that mean? This was last year. So this year, they are ready to, uh, to begin using artificial intelligence for lethal purposes, for killing people, for automatically identifying, locking in on a target, and then extinguishing them, neutralizing them, canceling the ultimate cancel, if you will, is the, the U.S. military that um, is able to just delete the existence of uh, really anyone that it determines fit um, on any um, on any soil, on any terrain um, and in any um, and in any setting. And there's, you know, there are other applications, other military applications, too, in terms of uh, in terms of logistics, in terms of um, in terms of surveillance. Um, and certainly they're all um, they're all related because what they're doing is working to put together and build uh, build a system that collects all of this information of your financial information, uh, your social media information, uh, your location information. Um, and in fact, the, the military actually has a, the U.S. military um, has a, uh, how do they call it, the fire hose of social media. They have that. They take that information directly in and they're using that to, uh, to analyze. Uh, but, uh, but just to also say, of in 2019, uh, the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, when he was speaking at the Paris Peace Forum, um, he um, he was alluding to the U.S. many times without actually saying the name, but he uh, he mentioned that there's a new arms race, the cyber arms race, and that he said a major confrontation would start with a massive, massive cyber attack, not only on military installations, but some civilian infrastructure. And that when it comes to autonomous weapons that can choose targets and kill people without human interference, Guterres says, we know that the technology is available for that. 
And what happened in the last few years as well, when we look at attacks on, on other countries, uh, we saw uh, Venezuela's electrical grid come under attack, um, and then U.S. Uh, US politicians cheering it on. Um, we, saw, uh, we saw other acts of sabotage um, against, uh, against Cuba as well, um, and other, other countries. And then there are, of course, other um, cyber military weapons that, that have been created, but uh, fundamentally of the cyber... Uh, the, the cyber weapons, um, the physical weapons, the economic weapons, they're all part of the arsenal of the U.S. military, of the U.S. empire to overthrow and topple independent governments uh, that want to chart an independent course. Well, I, I would just like to add something to uh, what Patricia said about the systemic framework of how the technology and where the technology is developed, in which, within which the technology is developed, uh, because I think that really is the most important element here, determining whether technology works for the people or, I don't know, for the 1%, for the military, for the repressive operators of various countries, and so on and so forth, or for, I don't know, supporting American Western imperialism in general. Because, you know, uh, technology, and I understand that there's a lot of metaphysical thinking about it, like on the part of the, uh, you know, capitalist class, like, you know, the better technology we get, uh, uh, the, the better the humanity is, uh, or, or I don't know, like you, you even get celebrities uh, like Elon Musk who are, you know, mm -hmm. all, all about technology and so on and so forth. And everybody is supposed to somehow uh, bow to them because they are so great because they are in disposal of technology. You know, they can produce electrical cars and so on and so forth. So, yeah, but, but I think what is, what is very important is the question of the system, really, because in a rational society... Okay, in in a rational economy, uh, which works for the development of the country of the people and 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 works for the well being of uh, of those that inhabit a certain you know country territory or whatever, then yes, then technology would be fantastic. And you know, in in a non capitalist system, in a socialist system, that would be fantastic. You know, more technology, more automation, less work for everybody. People can have more time for their families, for their hobbies, for I don't know, jogging or taking their their dogs out. You know whatever, right? They can just enjoy life without having to uh, uh, to confront themselves every day with uh, with this nonsense like we have now, right? Where technology is basically endangering sometimes. Uh, quite rarely, actually, I, I think it's an exaggerated thing, but uh, it is endangering jobs, for example, right? So uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to make that one point. Yeah, there was a there was a 2017 study put out by McKinsey, uh, the management consulting firm that uh, did some research into job automation in particular, and what they found. And in the U.S., by the way, two thirds of all jobs, just about to so like the the biggest chunk, um, are in the service sector. So, as in working in customer service, working at restaurants, working in in places where you're you're interfacing with one another, and not in um, uh, industrial productive facilities. Those have all been outsourced. Those have all these um, uh, you know U.S. based but international conglomerates. They they set up shop elsewhere where where labor is cheaper and they don't have to deal with unions. Um, and uh, with um, with the job automation, what the study found was that uh, fifty percent of all jobs could be automated using already existing technology. That was in 2017. And the, the big difference of what, what's happened, and, and it also it doesn't mean that you can just kind of you know, flip a switch and then, uh, then the automation happens. It actually requires a, a big influx of capital. You need to put a big investment in, uh, you know, as a company, would need to put a big investment in, uh, in 
buying up the different uh, automation equipments and not every company can, can do that. Um, but one other thing that happened during that same time was uh, the Trump uh, and Democrat uh, giveaway $1.5 trillion tax cuts to the rich uh, that basically gave all of this money uh, to, uh, to, these, to these corporations. Um, and so certainly this is something that is on the, the minds of, of companies very much as they're looking to continually, uh, continually cut costs, um, cut labor costs, cut hour pay, um, and increase, uh, increase their profit. Uh, because fundamentally, that, that's really that's the laws of capitalism. Those are the, the pressures of, of, uh, of the dynamic system of capitalism where you have to continually maximize profit or you go out of business. And so that pressure and this insanity, this, this anarchy of production, really, of where these companies will just produce and produce and produce and, and find ways to, to cut as much as possible, it's also, it shows it's not any one individual company, it's not any one individual decision, but it's rather the, the system of, of producing goods, of, of organizing our society that is leading us into climate disaster and also imperialist disaster. I want to also add about... Um, artificial intelligence as the offset strategy. And also, sorry, Maria, I saw that uh, you no, wanted no. to see the case so I can pause. Um, but with um, with artificial intelligence and in terms of why why this is so important to uh, to the U.S., why this is so important to the military, um, we have to understand of, of what the U.S. considers um, as its offset strategy. An offset, this is really just a euphemism for having a, a much more highly advanced uh, and powerful position. And if we think about back to World War II, of where essentially the modern world was reshaped, um, the U.S. came out of the war virtually unscathed. Soviet Union had lost 27 million people. Uh, and many other countries um, all across continental Europe had lost uh, millions. It was this mass carnage of, of um, so many countries just completely destroyed, their infrastructure, infrastructure destroyed. Um, and for the formerly fascist countries, the formerly belligerent countries, um, the uh, the U.S. Uh, put out the Marshall Plan. And in fact, you know, you go through the streets. I was just in Vienna. There were all these ads saying we love the Marshall Plan. We love the U.S. Uh, because what it did, the United States uh, was rebuilt all of the capitalist, um, the, the capitalist uh, societies, fascist societies, really. Um, and uh, gave them this influx of cash that allowed them and enabled them to uh, enable them to rebuild. And the U.S. controlled um, half of the world's uh, productive uh, capacity um, at that at that point. So I bring that up. Of, of they were used that that position to essentially uh, gain dominance across all these other um, all these other areas. Um, and uh, the military has developed, you know took that lead as well and, and developed these different offset strategies. The first offset, of course, being nuclear weapons, of where the U.S., through the use of, uh, of the development of these weapons of, of uh, horrendous destruction, only, only the U.S., by the way, has ever used on, on a human population, uh, used these um, uh, crimes against humanity. Um, so that was really the, the first offset that the U.S. used. The second offset was um, was networking uh, and digital revolution of using the internet uh, sensors um, and digitizing warfare uh, to essentially have more uh, more targeted bombs, um, not in terms of you know less of an impact, but really able to uh, to send out more sophisticated weaponry. And artificial intelligence is what the U.S. sees as its third offset. As this is what will set the U.S. apart, uh, what will set the military uh, military apart. 
And so this is why they're centralizing as much of the artificial intelligence as possible within the Pentagon. They set up an entire center dedicated to this. Um, and in fact, uh, even um, when you look at what the military officials themselves say, they, they call this uh, the U.S. military's unfair competitive advantage. Um, and the, the former chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff um, said in 2015, our most sacred obligation is to make sure that American soldiers are never sent into a fair fight. Never sent into a fair fight. That's their most sacred, uh, most sacred obligation. And even Jeff Bezos, actually, he echoed this some years later in, in 2019. He, he went to this uh, gathering of military officials and, and weapons manufacturers. And he said, do you really want to plan for a future where you have to fight with someone who's as good as you? This is not a sporting competition. You don't want to fight fair. And that's the crux of the U.S. is building as much as possible uh, to maintain this, this uh, intense, uh, intense advantage over other countries, um, not, because, uh, not because any country is nowhere as close. Of Russia, China, uh, Iran, all of them combined don't even come close to what the U.S. has in terms of existing infrastructure, foreign military bases, uh, the, the technology as well. Um, and uh, what the U.S. sees instead is that uh, it, it, in the threat to U.S. imperialism and, and dominance is that um, that other countries are developing their own independent um, own independent paths um, and that um, are essentially building up their own systems of defense um, against the U.S. and against this threat of, of military overthrow. Yeah, I was about to say, um, and to come back a little bit to this idea of automation, do you think jobs in the military will also get automated? And I'm asking this also from the perspective of Eastern Europeans, because a lot of military personnel in Romania used this opportunity of wars, actually, to go abroad and to fight in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and to earn money, good money, and to come back and build a life for themselves. It was actually, as usual, a war for the poor people that took the opportunity to go there, fight, and come back uh, and uh, be able to, to start a life. And this is so sad because usually, normally... Uh, I mean, they should be able to do this while doing other jobs, not this very risky and uh, quite uh, dangerous one. Uh, and uh, I wanted to ask you, since uh, usually it is uh, this uh, people and military personnel from the periphery of NATO that does most of the combat that is very dangerous, I mean, direct combat, um, are these jobs going to get automated? I think this is a very interesting point. I'm sure that the U.S. military is looking at all different ways of what it can automate and how. Uh, but I, um, I'm also, you know, and in some ways it's like hard to speculate, right, of not being able to like peer inside it and uh, peer inside their minds and uh, or their five year plans um, and see what they have, uh, what they have planned. Actually, in its 30 year plans, the, the U.S. military plans, uh, it, it's, it's a very planned organization. It's a centralized organization. Um, and, uh, and and that's something that, you know, is, is, is so fascinating of, of just how different uh, the, uh, uh, the capitalist society in the U.S. is, um, you know, complete anarchy production. In the military, it's the opposite. It's very centralized. Uh, but so I'm sure they're exploring as many different options to uh, remove uh, or reduce the human element. 
uh, to ensure that they can have uh, weapon weapon systems that um, are able to make decisions um, on on their own. Uh, but I I would be surprised if the use of mercenaries from poor countries did not continue um, in the same way that. Uh, that transnational companies will use uh, will use cheap labor um, in other areas uh, where the class struggle um, is uh, is very much more suppressed um, or oppressed, um, where uh, these companies can extract that much more profit. In the same way, the military also, the U.S. military will you know outsource to NATO, um, outsource some of that spending to uh, to other countries, and and use other countries in places where it would not be conducive to have American soldiers killed, um, American troops put. Put, uh, put at risk. So I, I would think that I'm sure there would still be uh, still be risky positions uh, that that would exist, and that so many people, whether whether from Romania or whether from Uganda as well, which uh, which had uh, used a lot of um, uh, been used in a lot of different areas, would be used for uh, for those purposes. Right. I just could add one point here about. Uh, Outsourcing, it's not just outsourcing uh, all those things that you said, which obviously is the case, but also outsourcing uh, things like torturing. Because a couple of years ago, we had this affair about a uh, scandal, basically, about uh, secret CIA uh, prisons, uh, black sites, really, in Poland, in Romania, and I think in Lithuania, was it Latvia, one of the Baltic states there. And, uh, you know, the American officials at the time were able to testify in front of the European, was it European Commission or some commission formed by the European Commission to investigate this, when they said no American was torturing any Arab or any other nationality in uh, Europe. And I think they were, you know, they were not lying. In fact, the Polish were doing that for the Americans. The Romanians were doing that for the Americans, all the dirty work and so on and so forth. So, uh, and in the final aftermath, we know really... I mean, nothing came out of this investigation, nothing substantial. So that's one thing. And second, uh, the question of... Uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, I, I've actually lost my train of thought here. I, well, uh, one I thing, forgot the first one point thing I that I would about. add... One thing that I would add to, and I'm, I'm so glad you brought up uh, brought up the black sides as well, because in in the same way, you know, really of revealing of the uh, the hypocrisy of the U.S., um, the the real uh, imperialist, disgusting, racist view that right. the U.S. has towards uh, towards people of the other world. You know, people in the in the U.S. of that join the military, they join for a variety of reasons. Um, it's actually it's a position that's held up as a as a place of respect. As you can get a job, it's um, you'll get training, you'll get an education, healthcare, pension, uh, all these different things. Yeah, pension. Um, and uh, and I'm I'm sure that there is probably there's a similar aspect in in Romania as well. I was walking through uh, this was a while ago, but through the airport, and there was like this big ad saying like, "Be the best you can be. Join the air force." And this is something of, of where you know when when you have a when you have these positions elevated and when you have people going into them. I, I mean, you know, people go in for for a variety of reasons, and it's really kind of when you're in that position and that reality is is revealed before you. That's where you also see if people uh, taking a stand, coming out against the wars, uh, revealing these uh, these black sites, or leaking leaking this information. Yeah, and I also think that uh, it was particularly important when uh, the U.S. was about to attack Syria. That was that was something absolutely uh, amazing 
when you saw all those Marines and uh, other, you know, people th that are part of other military formations in America covering their faces with, uh, you know, signs like I'm not in the military to bomb Syria or wh whatever it was, I can't remember the exact formulations, but this was, uh, it was so massive. And, and, you know, at the time, I just remember how Obama was like absolutely freaking out saying like, we, we just can't do anything because we don't know how the army is actually going to react to that. Right. So uh, that's very important. And now I remember the point I was going to make earlier. So just let me make it now very briefly. Uh, it's about those, uh, the question of the centralization of, and, and the planning in the military. Of course, it's all over the place, not only in America, where the military has to be centralized in order in, for it to function properly and, and to, you know, to, to be sustainable and, and to develop. Uh, but I don't think it's only the military. It's also large corporations and basically large companies. And I quite recently finished reading Lee Phillips' book, uh, The People's Republic of Walmart, which is a fascinating thing, how you can see that. And, and you know, this is this is precisely what is what I find the left is not, not exploiting enough. Like there's so much planning in the world today under capitalism. The problem is that the planning is for the corporations, for those that are are making the profits and for us for the consumers right it's the free market where we only have you know this anarchic totally pathological uh, you know architecture and uh, you know us the left what we want to do the socialist is we want to you know switch the proportion in a sense that we want to be more planning and less free market right we don't want to cancel the free market totally i mean taking it out of the equation and so on and so forth we just want dominant form of the uh, uh, of the economy to be planning right so uh yeah that was uh, that was something i was uh, uh, yeah. i was gonna the point i was gonna make back then right it's a it's interesting i mean i think that that book really covers uh covers quite well of of showing how within within a company as big as walmart which is one of the top if not the top employer in the u.s of that uh, there is so much planning. Everything is planned within uh, to exploit as much profit as possible. I mean, within um, within my organization, of we would call for the abolition of anarchy and production, of doing away with, uh, with the so-called free market where anyone can essentially go and create either a product or a good or service um, and, uh, and use that to, uh, to gain, a, gain a profit um, without you know, impact uh, or without consideration for the environment, for, for things like this, of that when we think about the, the earth and the resources that it has, of, of the finite resources, that we need to be extremely judicious. Um, and of course, you know, I think that's, that's really the goal of getting to a society where we have, uh, where we uh, are able to plan, uh, plan the economy of, of determine um, how do we, uh, how do we, how do we use these, uh, these, these productive factories and so on to distribute goods to everyone? How do we use this logistical infrastructure to minimize as much waste as possible um, and open up, just as you were saying, of, of all of that free time for people to enjoy time with their families, for scientific exploration, uh, for research into our world, for repairing the environment, uh, bringing the pollution out from the ocean. I mean, these are they're critical issues that, that we're facing today. Yeah, for the end of our show, because we are running out of time, um, I want to discuss something of a, I would say, more philosophical. I, I, I kept asking myself, how do we get out of this? Because uh, unfortunately, the United States set a very poor example of um, uh, a nation that uses all its force to dominate. And of course, 
It will come a time when this domination will no longer be possible, but since they set up such a poor example, it is obvious that the ones that are going to come next are probably going do, to do the same. And another uh, thing here is that um, in Romania, we have a very, very well-financed security apparatus, military, secret services, and I think this is the case throughout the world. Since you invest so much as you are the leader uh, of the world economically, military, and you invest so much in the military, the other countries are going to follow along. And I was just discussing to Patricia before starting the recording how this is creating a situation where you have military elites all over the world and people who want peace, that they can be... So the real opposition is not between Romanians and Russians, Americans and Russians, but between those who want peace and who want collaboration and who want the things that Patricia just described and the other ones that actually want war. And this is so perverse that even the military that opposes the United States in some kind of perverse way, they get along because they want the same thing, to be the top dog, to be the one that dominates the others. So the real opposition here is not between nation, but between those with different mentality, I would say. And different economic interests also, I think there's exactly. a class element in it as well. Different yeah. economic interests because they profit. I mean, uh, as I told Paul Jay, another journalist, I think Vladimir Putin serves a very good purpose for the military elites in the United States because he's the boogeyman that have to has to be uh, shown to uh, the American public in order to squeeze as much uh, Yeah, and it works. And it works. And it works perfectly. Yeah, same because? with China, by the way, right? Yes, they, they are perfect because they serve this purpose. And I'm pretty sure that right now in China, there are people that are very upset with their military spending. But how do you get out of this? Because the... Well, I think it's worth also looking back to the 1980s with the overthrow and collapse of the Soviet Union and, uh, and Eastern European and the socialist bloc of Eastern European countries, uh, you had essentially uh, the forces in the United States and the peerless within the United States of examining the world situation um, and essentially saying, we're going to maximize spending. As Reagan put it, full court press against the Soviet Union. Um, and there were others within his administration who said, but Reagan, we're going to bankrupt ourselves. And his response was telling. He said, yes but the Soviets will bankrupt themselves first. And I think that that shows of why it's so important to discuss and, and not just discuss, but really fight for socialism within the United States. That not only is it possible, but is it necessary? As long as there is uh, the boot of imperialism, of US imperialism, which is the dominant and leading force of imperialism today, um, why it's so important to, uh, to raise the global class issue of just as you were saying, Maria, of, of that fundamentally, we're one working class, we're one planet. You look at the messages that's put out even by Xi Jinping and where he talks about how um, at, the, at the beginning of the pandemic, of, of not to mention all of, the, all of the things that China did of of sequencing the genome, releasing it, uh, but putting out the message of that humanity has a shared future. And that's something that we don't see come out from any of the leaders from, uh, from Western countries or within, uh, within the imperialist orbit um, and, and really shows of their orientation of that there's no shared future uh, because they live in a completely different society. They live in a society where they have 
36 or more mansions, as one of those billionaires who recently died uh, found out. They have entire private jets. Uh, they have an, an entire class and group of people that they interact they with. They are detached from reality in a very material sense of the of the word. Like they, you know. And not only that, but their luxury, just as the wealth, the unimaginable wealth of the kings of the past were built on uh, built on slavery, on um, on the work from uh, from the people who worked the land, who who uh, produced the goods uh, from enslaved people from the colonies, just as their wealth was built on that of uh, the wealth of London and all these you know Western cities are, are built on that, and the U.S. as well of hundreds of years of enslavement. Um, uh, so too the wealth of the eight thousand or so um, uh, millionaires and billionaires that uh, own and control the productive forces of society, their wealth comes from the destruction of the environment, from the extraction of as much oil from uh, from the world as possible, uh, from continued war uh, and spread of war and bombing of, of cities and funding of these terrorist groups. I mean, those are the real enemy. That's the real enemy of humanity. That's the real enemy to, uh, to peace uh, peace on earth. It's not China. It's not Russia. Um, it's, it's fundamentally, it's, it's the imperialists in the world, um, the U.S. imperialists that um, dominate the, uh, the global economy, uh, dominate the, uh, the world militarily, um, and are prepared to destroy and devastate as many millions, if not billions of lives as needed for them to continue living within that unspeakable luxury. But the people of the world, um, I think we're really seeing of that, that we're reaching a point where that's really not an option. And people are organizing, people are mobilizing, people, and especially in the United States, of, of you have um, just about half, a little more than half of young people who say they would rather live under a social society. And the reason why that is, is that, that they see from different examples of even, you know, socialism with all of the, the many challenges that, that it's had of that, this is the only way forward. A planned economy is the only way forward. Operating on the basis of collaboration and peace, that's the only path that we can take and that we must take. And that will take a revolution. And that's something Absolutely. that it's, you know, that the world needs, that, that people need, and that um, is really a movement of the people. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, and that's a fantastic end note. I, I just want to add one little thing here uh, regarding the, the sort of uh, fighting for socialism in uh, in the United States, which is, of course, uh, the fight for a systemic change and for the well-being of the people of America and all over the world, but it's also disrupting American imperialism at home, which is super important, I think, particularly yeah. now when we can see the empire imploding, basically, or beginning to implode. And, uh, you know, uh, there are so many sort of signs of it, in a sense, like... Uh, the American establishment class being at each other's throats for the last, you know, uh, at least five or six years. Uh, and, and uh, you know, when you look historically, in retrospect, I think the British Empire, for example, did a very good job of disintegrating itself. Like, it was rather peaceful, despite the fact that, of course, uh, it brought about all kinds of atrocities throughout its existence. But still, it kind of imploded in a rather peaceful and controlled manner where I'm really not sure how it is going to go uh, with the American empire. I think that uh, it's, uh, it's pretty dangerous uh, and, and pretty uh, uncertain in terms of, uh, as a prospect, like uh, we're not sure whether, uh, whether this is not going to bring about something absolutely disastrous for the whole uh, humanity. And uh, provided how certain sectors of the American ruling class react to, uh, you know, other countries asserting their independence, like Russia, China, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, and so on and so forth, I, I think that's, uh, 
th that puts a lot of responsibility uh, on the on the shoulders of American leftist activists. And I want to, you know, thank you for being one of them, challenging the empire and, and embracing that responsibility. Yeah. I would also just add to of of I think in terms of the, um, the U.S. empire and uh, and the potential for undoing of U.S. imperialism. I mean, I, I think it, it's really it's a struggle of the people and of of when you look at in U.S. society, I think people are really starting to see of why is it that schools in Baltimore have no heat? It's because bombs are raining down in Syria. It's because bombs are threatening Iran. It's because military bases are circling um, all these different countries. And, and that uh, with the rise of media, uh, just like yourselves, it's so important of making those connections and, and bridging those international connections to show that solidarity and, and show uh, really the realities of working people all over the world. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I started on a pessimistic note, saying that we are going to discuss things that are not very pleasant or optimistic. But finally, we managed to have this optimistic uh, perspective at the end. And thank you very much, Patricia and Boyan, for this very insightful conversation. And uh, for the rest of you, the, our viewers, I hope you enjoyed our show. And uh, please support us. Go to patreon.com slash the barricade. This is the place where you can become our Patreon and support us because you're our only hope we don't have other major investors so thanks so much to the both of you and uh, stay healthy keep fighting and i'll see you all very soon bye thank you <laughs>